great to be with us. I'm Andy, one of the elders here at Christ First. Um, let, me, uh, let me share with you some scriptures. Hopefully we've got, I've got control. We'll see what happens. No? Okay. Uh, go back one? It's all right. Let me read some scripture to us, first of all. Let me read these to you. And, and honestly, as the songs were coming today and... I hadn't had much of a conversation with Sue about song choice. And then as Brian and Marion were praying, thinking, okay, this is a setup. God's doing something. Let me read some scriptures to you. Philippians 2, 9 to 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is Jesus. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Acts 4.2, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Ephesians 1.21, for above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come, is the name of Jesus Christ. If you ever wondered why we call ourselves Christ first, there's a clue. There's a clue. We could call ourselves whatever you like. Waterfall, flowing river, lots of churches to go down the river line. We, when we were deciding how we named this church, said, let's just Ron Seal it. Whatever it says does exactly what it says on the tin. Christ first. Not in place of God. Let's not be fooled here. Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We feel we need to declare the name that is above every name every time you speak. One of the Somewhat awkward but joyful moments for me as I'm mixing with this new, my new bunch of friends in this Afghan community is that they say, where are you from? And I say, Christ first. And you can tell, they're like, hmm. Because if I said waterfall, they'd be like, hmm. But when I say Christ first, they're like, that says something. Amen. It's one of the classic questions of conversation. I'm going to come back to all that, by the way. It's one of those conversation starters icebreaker questions that gets asked in nearly every other training course. If you could invite anyone from history to dinner, who would it be? Past and present, alive or not. And sometimes they say like six people, sometimes they say one. You get asked this question. So think about that question. Who would you invite to dinner? I just want to put two caveats on. So your favorite person you want to bring. Two caveats. One is, I'm busy, sorry. <laughs> Secondly, can't be Jesus. Because they don't know when he's coming, so it'd be a bad scheduling plan, okay? Because he doesn't know, no one knows when he's coming back, so you make the plan and maybe he wouldn't show. No disrespect, that's sacrilegious, but you know what I mean, not him. Ponder that question now, and then see if we've got tech back. We don't, so you have to click on for me. Right, next one. So who is this? Jamiroquai, did I hear? I heard the correct answer from my wife. If you said Jamiroquai, you are wrong. This is JK the lead singer of the band, Jamiroquai. Everyone thinks he's Jamiroquai, if you've got any sort of background in music, but that's JK. The band is called Jamiroquai. Just taking a slight detour, if you can indulge me for a moment. <clears throat> I used to have a band. No, I know it's a big secret. You probably don't know, you don't know that I'm musical. So we're going back to 30 years ago. Is that right? We had a band, I started a band. It was made up from people in this church. It's called True Faith. And we were quite good, actually. And we would play modern music and old soul. And in the interval, we'd slip in 
Christian stuff to freak out all the audience. We'd like do a cappella versions of like Christian songs. But then we go back to doing the stuff they would dance to. And we were pretty decent. We would fill a big venue sometimes and we'd play pubs and we'd fill every time. Because we I'd spent forever putting together this band. We were playing songs that had orchestras in them and brass sections in them. I would painstakingly spend endless hours at night building backing tracks. We were way ahead of our time. So you could hear like a brass band playing, brass section, a horn section, or a, or a string section, but there was only guitars, bass, drums on the stage. We synced it all up, we had clicks in our ears, and we went live, and people were like, you guys sound amazing, because we were way ahead of our time. We were good. I'd set up, do rehearsals, plan everything, print lyrics for everyone, get the song keys worked out, train everyone, get the venues, go to the venues, set up the thing, do the gig, good stuff, start to lead the pack down, while my brother, who was the lead singer would stand amongst the people being slapped on the back and say, love your band. Your band's amazing. When can we book your band? Stand there thinking, your band? Your band. Do you know who the person who formed you two is? The drummer. Drummers are cool. But no, it's, ba it's Bodo's band, isn't it? It's not the drummer's band. No, the drummer started the band. I'm not bitter. I'm just getting this off my chest. <laughs> My point is, my brother would start, and he, to be fair to my brother, he's a decent guy. He would like, no, no, it's not me, it's his. He set this up. He would often tell people, sometimes after a few beers, he was like, no, I'm taking it. You know, <laughs> yes, I formed this band. We watched The Commitments, a film years ago, thought we'll start a band. That was the story. Um, that's not totally a detour, though, from what I want to say. There was an element of worship being afforded to my brother, Neil. You know how lead singers get worship, right? There was an element of worship being afforded to my brother, Neil, um, but he was really just a front man for something far bigger going on behind the scenes. There was a lot that went on to get to that moment, but he was the front man, and there was some worship being applied to him. And keep that in mind. I want to go back to JK. When JK and the band Jamiroquai appear on the scene, and if you know who they are, you'll know how good they were. They were incredibly good. They had this kind of jazz, funky soul thing going on and they were brilliant musicians and a brilliant band and the way they did their music was great but what really made them popular was that they had this kind of very earthy eco-friendly their first album I think maybe the second was called Emergency on Planet Earth they talked about the environment they talked about equality they talked about fairness the lead singer JK was quite scruffy kind of unkempt he looked like some guy next door who just put this weird thing on his head they play, had the didgeridoo in their music. You may think that sounds ridiculous, but it sounds incredible in their songs. They just had this way of kind of being very earthy, very real, very eco, very green. Fast forward 10 to 15 years later, and JK is famous for having a ridiculous collection of performance cars. If you want to click the next slide up for me. Oh, I can click. Praise Jesus. You said that with confidence. <laughs> Nothing's clicking. Go for it. Performance cars. JK was famous for having performance cars. And also, sadly, famous for getting into fights with people because they might have bumped his performance car. He had a full-on fight with someone because he said that he kicked his Bentley. He took someone to court because they did a million pounds worth of damage to his Ferrari. And they had a fight, and they, he, they smashed up his... So the news was all about his Ferrari. My view was JK had just suddenly gone from this kind of who I thought he was to a very human person. 
I put him on a bit of a pedestal. He would be my dinner invite, one of the six at least. And yet now he was, hang on, he's quite human. Did I then throw out my Jamiroquai albums and say, they're all rubbish? No, they're still excellent. What they did was still to me, from a musical sense, excellent. But my view of him had been brought down to something more realistic. He's flawed and imperfect, just like me. He was not to be idolized. He doesn't deserve that status, but it's a status I gave to him. I chose to elevate him. I chose, it's not his fault, it was mine in the position I'd held him. So when he came down, and I could use other examples that might even sting a bit more, there was a moment when I was like, so let down by this person I'd thought was something he wasn't. But it was my idolization of him, not his fault. So let's get Hebrews chapter 3 open in our Bibles. And let's see why I set that up in that way. To set the context of this letter to the Hebrews, we're going to look at it today. We'll just set some context. It's written, this particular part we're looking at today is written to the Christian, the new Christian, a new Gentile, i.e. non-Jew Christians, and the, those that were Jews have become Christian as well. So they would often be described as Christian Jews or Jewish Christians. And they themselves were mostly the focus of what we're about to read. Okay? The writer of this letter is looking to address or reset the Christian Jews' view because the change in their lives has been seismic. It's a huge change in what they should now believe, as is true of us as Christians. And yet there were some concerns, that perspective, that change of worldview, that change of how we should see things and how they would have seen things seemed to be drifting backwards. Their culture and their human nature and the people around them seem to be pulling them back to some old behaviours and some old ways of thinking. So as we read this, I want us to realise we're not too far from this reality. We're not. The predominant faith, what's the predominant faith in our culture? It's not really. It's just belief in self, which is interesting in the confession in the prayer this morning. Self-belief. That's the dominant thing in our culture now. What I do is right. What I think is true. I'm self-reliant, potentially self-absorbed, self-sufficient. These are all the things we celebrate. We don't celebrate dependency. We celebrate self-sufficiency. That's the predominant faith of our culture. I'm going to look at this using um, three wrong perspectives. Did it just work? Wow. Okay. I don't know if I've actually got this in a slide. There you go. The wrong destination, the wrong king, and the wrong scale. So let's go with the wrong destination. I just want to start with this line, actually, from... In fact, if I go back to, I think it's there. There you go. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling... Fix your thoughts on Jesus. That's the first line of um, Hebrews four, 3. Sorry, That's the first line. Now you may go, oh yeah, nice, interesting. But there's a subtlety there that we're already going to miss if we're not careful. It's a shift, again, from a perspective, a destination. Because prior to this, 
prior to Jesus, prior to him revealing himself and the Jews finding out what he was about, their perspective was often on the material, the present, things that happened now or in their current history. Predominantly material things, so the winning of battles, the winning of land. You read your Old Testament, you'll see that. The, the food, the shelter, the freedom from slavery, often a very present view. Often the prayers were not, as we said many times before, not get me out, but get me through this season. And God would answer getting them through this time. A very present viewpoint, nothing wrong with that. If you're suffering, you will say, help me right now. But that was often their perspective, the present yeah, in Christ, the Christian is promised and called into something far bigger than that. The destination shifts from the present to the eternal. The calling into the heavenlies, to be part of a heavenly people, to be part of heavenly holy brothers and sisters, is a shift. The term heavenly comes many times in this letter. We talk about, and listen to this, you'll hear heavenly things. I.e. there are things and there are heavenly things. You'll hear mentions of heavenly countries. There are countries and there are heavenly countries. You'll even hear mention of heavenly Jerusalem. There is a Jerusalem and there is a heavenly Jerusalem. And all our perspectives shift to these new destinations. All these earthly versions are but shadows of what is being promised. My earthly family is great, but it's a shadow of my heavenly family. My earthly father was a good man. He was. I had a very good dad. Died a long time ago, sadly. His goodness as a father was a shadow of the father I have in heaven. Moses led people into a material destination. The promised land was a place to go. Jesus leads us into an eternal destination, the place forever that we're called to. These verses and this whole section starts to queue up this point. Moses was a great leader. He was a great leader, but his work was incomplete. If you know the story, he did not actually himself lead them to the promised land. If you don't know your Bible, everyone says, oh yeah, Moses led the people to the promised land. No, he didn't. He might have led them there, but Joshua took them in. Jesus, he never made it, Moses. Jesus' work is complete. He finished what he was told to come and do. He said on the cross, it is finished. The work is full and complete. In a, um, a book, a commentary on this by um, Donald Guthrie, he says these words. In spite of his greatness, Moses never achieved his aim of leading the Israelites into the promised land. This too is, a, is in strong contrast to the completed work of Christ, which is so strongly stressed in this letter. So the, Hebrews, Hebrew, the letter to the Hebrews asked the Christian and asked me and you with the same question. Where do we set our sights? How do we judge the favor of God and our relationship with God? Is it in the present alone, or is it in the present and the eternal? Some people refer to this, don't live in the now as a Christian, live in the now and the not yet. Life is real. We, we pray for God to help us in these circumstances. But when our perspective shifts to, well, this isn't all of it, this is but momentary. It's achieving a future glory. We sing that in the song, right? Though trouble's hard, it's only momentary. We are in this life for a short time, but we're now called into an eternal perspective. As a people, are we those that have had our perspective changed? Have we made a shift into that from the now to the now and the not yet? Or are we judging God's favor on how things are going in the present? 
Let's look at the wrong king. He, this is 1 Timothy 6.15, He, Jesus, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Getting, bringing my Jamiroquai point back, my JK point back, there's a, there's a pattern in the Old Testament. We see it in Hebrews. There's a pattern that evolves. That things that God sets up as aids of worship become objects of worship. The things that he said, this is a representation of my work. There's a snake that, um, I think it was made a golden version of a snake that was used to kind of help them when they were being poisoned by a snake. They then make that a thing to worship. It becomes a god. Things get elevated. God says, I'm allowing this into your life, and I don't want to be too trivial, but the joys of music, but if you push it too high and you idolize it, it becomes a thing of worship. And our God is a jealous God, because only he truly deserves worship. Amen? The people God uses become elevated sometimes, way beyond what they should be. They should be honored if they've done God's work. They should be respected. But throughout the Old Testament, what happens is when those people get elevated too high in the eyes of people, God allows them to be brought down to earth. Their humanity to be revealed. Not to destroy them, but to say, let's be clear, they're not the object of worship. I am. They're aids to that worship. So you look at people like David, King David. And we revere, we still read his Psalms, and we think he's amazing. Of course he was, because he did amazing things for God. But he also tried to get his friend killed so he could sleep with his wife. His humanity is revealed, his flaws are revealed. But do we then say, no, I'm not reading another Psalm ever again? No, God's used him at that time. This was a moment of God allowing us to see his humanity. He is flawed. Same with his son Solomon. King Solomon, we read the Proverbs, the man of wisdom that God gives, and you, you quote Proverbs, you have them on coffee cups because they're so pithy and they're so well written and other things that Solomon would have done. And yet he himself falls away. It says in uh, 1 Kings, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Your humanity is revealed, but do we not read Proverbs anymore? Of course we do, because God worked amazing things through Solomon. There's many reasons why God will allow people to fall, but one of them, I believe, is clearly to show the humanity, so we make sure we look at the object of worship as God and not the person. We see their human families, and we say, okay, amazing what you've said, but let me remind myself, he's perfect, you're not. We are looking always for a king. That's a, that's, a, that's a human trait. We're looking for someone to help lead us. As a Christian, we should have found him. But often we don't. And you, you look at the story of the Old Testament, and as uh, one theologian said in a very Alec Guinness voice, in a Star Wars 4 moment, as they search for the king, and they think it's David, they think it's Solomon, they think it's some of the judges, the word is, this is not the king you're looking for. That's a droid quote from Star Wars for the Geeks. But we're looking for the king. It, it, he's a king, but he's not the king you're looking for. The king is coming. The king is coming. He's not the king you're looking for. That ran deep in the Jewish psyche. It runs in our psyche. So we look, they looked for David and Solomon. They were like, they, that, that's, is that the one? That's the one we worship? Oh, hang on a sec, they're not. But the one that stood above them all, the one that really stood even above your Davids and your Solomons was Moses. 
was Moses. Writer of the Torah, or the Pentateuch, the first five letters of the Bible. He's the man, right? Leading people out of slavery. Did he? Did God? He was the guy. He's the man. The most common answer to that question, by the way, of who you would like to invite to dinner from history, you know what the answer generally is in this country? Nelson Mandela. He wins. Okay? People want him to dinner. In a Jewish culture, it would be Moses. They would want Moses to come to dinner because Moses is the ultimate freedom fighter in their eyes. Leads a whole nation out of slavery. Fast forward then a couple of thousand years to after the time of Moses. Christian Jews now turn to Christ, realize, should be realizing Je- Moses was part of the story, but here is Christ. But there's a growing concern in the writer. Now, hang on a second, they're slipping back. There seems to be something going on here because Moses' name is held in such high regard. Look, the law that God gave to Moses is referred to often as the Mosaic law. They even gave him the name of God's law. The covenant that God made with people before Jesus, the Mosaic covenant. Moses is held in such incredible high regard. And then they're encouraged to go, why don't you come back to the synagogues? You need to come back here. And what's happening in the synagogues? Moses is revered like a small G God. He's held in such high regard. The rabbis would often say, we are disciples of Moses. Who's this Jesus? That's quoted in the Bible. They respond. We're disciples of Moses. Who's Jesus? The Christian Jew should know the answer to that question. Well, he's Moses. He's Jesus. But somehow the scale has come so close that they're thinking, well... Jesus plus Moses, Jesus plus these things, that's how I'm going to do this. Jesus is their new, ultimate, eternal Lord, Lord of lords, King of kings. But Moses seems to be starting to make a a reappearance in their affections. The question I want to ask me and you, who's jockeying for my affections? Who am I tempted? What am I tempted to kind of, you know... Is it this or is it Jesus? I confess to you there are times when I look at my diary and think, or contemplate my week just gone by and thinking, if someone was to do an audit based on my Christianity, I wouldn't come out very well. Because so little of what I could do with my time and my affections is put elsewhere. Let's look at the wrong scale. Above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The name of Jesus is Ephesians 1.21. This is where I want to talk about that thing about, you know, the person you're taking to dinner again, the person you had in your mind when I said you can invite anyone to dinner, the one person you put there. And if they're like, you know, the, the Jews would have, have seen Moses, it would, they would have, this person would be very elevated in your opinion of them. This letter is about to Bring that down a peg or a thousand. And let's be very, very, very clear here. I think it's so important. The person writing is not trying to disrespect or downgrade Moses. Neither should we. They are trying to elevate Jesus. They're not saying, let me just pull Moses down. They're saying, let me push Jesus up. So when I say to you and to me about the things in my life that have got my affection, I'm not trying to pull them down 
because it's wonderful some of the gifts we have, the things that God has given us. But we must push Jesus up. Amen? So, the point here, and you're about to see it, is Moses stands high as a servant. He is revered as a faithful servant of God. High. But when you put Jesus on the scale, it just blows the metric apart. I was going to do it. I decided not to because it would have upset some people, especially Aaron. I was going to do like a holiness scale of me versus Aaron. (laughs) You know, out of 10, you know, it's nudging. Some weeks I beat him, other weeks he beats me. Then I shove in, you know, someone you think is holy, I don't know who that is, and they kind of bump the scale up. So there are 15, and me and him go down a little bit. You're chucking Moses, and he's like 100, and we go right down on the scale, so like that. So you can just about see me and Aaron. Then you throw Jesus in, and everyone just falls to the floor because the scale just gets blown apart by the holiness of Jesus. So let me go into, let me read to you. There's a chunk of Hebrews I want to read to you. I'm not doing too bad. I think we'll get five minutes at the end if that's all right with you guys. But let me read to you uh, Hebrews 3 1 to 6. It says this Jesus. Remember the letter to the Hebrews, the letter to the new Christians, focused on those that have come from the Jewish background. Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. This is a respectful moment to who Moses is. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of the house has greater honor than than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. The rest of chapter 3 really is a reminder, not for the first time, has God intervened and moved into their lives? And not for the first time have they slipped back. They did it in the 40 years in the desert. They're doing it potentially again now. It's a reminder. We have a habit of, God's amazing, and then coming back away from it again. Because he did something. Look at, then we go into chapter um, 4 and verses 1 to 5. Therefore, and this is what this is saying again, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. This is the starkest of warnings. This is saying the same disobedience of their forefathers is what you could potentially go into and that's a deeply cutting question a painful question to ask you can read past its bluntness and you can just miss what it's saying it's saying if you slip back into old covenant ways if you slip back into some old habits just like them i have to ask the question were you truly saved at all it says because they did not share in the faith of those that obeyed it's a it's a very brutal line like just like them are you you're not you didn't did you really share in the faith did you really come alongside? As I said before, Jesus changes the scale. And with all due respect, the scale on which Moses is just gets obliterated by Jesus. So if Moses is close, the question would be, well, do you share in the faith? If in my life, 
my desire for things. And Jesus is close. Do I really understand who he is and what he's done? And that's not a condemnation question. That's a conviction question. Because we can always pull the scale back. Let's just look a little bit closer at that end chapter. And then I'm going to try and wrap this up in a helpful way. For every house is built by someone. But God is the builder of of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, bearing witness to what will be spoken by God in the future, but Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. If we needed any further clarity here, just making the point here, there's a difference between who Moses is and who Jesus is. In fact, they just shouldn't be on the same scale, really. Moses has an incredible position in history, in the story of God's house now, some say the house is the church. I think that's true. But others say the house is like the whole of everything because it says God builds everything. The whole story in which Moses plays this incredible role. But he is inside the house. God builds it. Jesus is over it. God, when he, when he built everything and formed everything, sets the rules out in the law. Then Jesus is allowed to come, asked to come, and then sets a new set of rules. No longer abide by the law. Believe in me and you will be saved. The house rules change, and they never will change again, no matter what anyone says until Jesus comes again. God created everything. I nearly did a thing about, time was not going to be on my side, but if you ever get to see the Sagrada Familia, which is the cathedral they're building in the middle of Barcelona, it is the most stunning of buildings. Designed by a guy called Gaudi, who died 100 years ago, it's still not finished. It'll be finished in 2026. It's an amazing building. And you stand in the middle of it and you're kind of lost in wonder. And outside, it's just unbelievable. I know Jerry and Sue, you've been, haven't you? We plan to go back in 2026 together and see it finished. It is breathtaking. But if you were to say to the person who was running it, wow, you and Gaudi did an amazing job, he would go, seriously, guys, I'm not Gaudi, all right? I just run this place. He designed it. And he should be the one that you're looking at. Now, that's a, danger, that's a home goal, potentially, because now you're thinking, Gaudi's amazing. But Gaudi just wanted it to glorify God. That's all he ever said. Bring glory to God. What I'm building, bring glory to God. Not the object of worship. He's the object of worship. Moses was a willing servant in God's house, but Jesus was head over it. Jesus now runs the house from God's law to faith in him. Moses had a role, as we said, in a temporary covenant of the law. Jesus changes everything to an eternal covenant. You see, every function, everything that you're reading about in this particular section is trying to compare earthly with heavenly, human with Jesus. Every station and every role that gets mentioned is a comparison between what we believe, what we see, and who Christ is. So Jesus is our full and glorious. Let me just see if I did this. Okay, I thought I put it on there. Nope. Let me read, I'll read from my notes. Jesus is our full and glorious high priest. He is the one who takes us in to the presence of his father. That was a role that humans would do. But actually Jesus takes us right into the presence of God. He is our great and full and glorious high priest. He's taking us, if you want to, into the presence of God right now. Into eternity. He pays the price for our sin, repairs this broken relationship that we could not approach God, and says, Because of my blood, because of my sacrifice, 
Come with me into the presence of the Father. He is our great, full, and glorious high priest. He's our full and glorious apostle. In Hebrews, it's, as far as I can tell and know, it's the only time they ever describe Jesus as an apostle. Apostle means sent one. So you know that term because that the apostles, yeah, the ones that were sent. But it says Jesus was the ultimate apostle, the ultimate sent one, sent from heaven to earth, sent to us. There's a song, we, I nearly got us to sing it today, but it's a bit of a cheesy old one, but the words are great. Jesus came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. He's the ultimate sent one into our existence to save us from our sin. He is the full and glorious Savior King. He's eternally merciful. He's eternally faithful. He's eternally gracious. He is eternally righteous. He is eternally our Lord. Eternally. And nothing, to quote another singer, Sinead O'Connor, nothing compares to you. Nothing compares to you. And Hebrews challenges us. Be careful of the object of your worship because there is one, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinitarian, I know, but the object of our affection is God. The object of our salvation and our worship, Jesus Christ. Jesus invites us into his Father's house. He stands at the door and says, come in, because this is my house. And when you're in here, this is where the party is. This is where it's, this is where it's at. 